Hey everyone, Giuseppe Santamaria here, the photographer behind Men in This Town and editor of MIT Magazine. As you may know by now, I launched the fifth issue of MIT a couple weeks ago, and to celebrate we held a MIT Studio Talks at the MIT Market pop-up over some cocktails and bagels. We talked to the bagel man himself, Dave Young, one half of Smoking Gun Bagels, who are profiled in the new issue, plus a couple of our writers talked about their amazing pieces. This is the final MIT Studio Talks at the MIT Market pop-up before we move into our permanent home in Finefellow in January, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, if you haven't picked up a copy of MIT Issue 5, you can do so at meninthistown.com magazine, where you can order online or find a stockist near you. Hope you enjoy the talk. Um, so the first guy we're going to talk to is Dave Young. Uh, he has been serving the amazing uh, bagels from Smoking Gun Bagels. Let's give him a round of applause. <laughs> right over here. Right over here. So, um, <laughs> so let me just uh, get this technology going. This is the, uh, yeah, Mark and Dave, who are the guys who kind of started along with Tony. Uh, smoking gun bagels. Now, I guess the, the idea here with the shop is that you guys do Montreal style bagels. Yeah. The question must be what is the difference between normal bagels and yeah. Montreal style bagels? What, what is the difference? Well, so, the key difference is the recipe and probably the process. Right. <clears throat> so, Montreal style bagels have egg and sugar in them. So, you might, well, you probably don't take notice, but we do. Brooklyn Boys has positioned themselves pretty much within a month of us. Right, right. Opening is being vegan and gluten free, right. and you know all that stuff um, because well, we've got egg, we've got sugar, so yeah. not vegan, gluten free, vegan and sugar free. Whereas we've got sugar, we've got eggs. So the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we try to we try to feed you crack like we're <laughs> sugar, addictive. But it's because Montreal's French speaking. You go there, they speak French first. They love bread. It's. There's a real culture around bagels in Montreal. Right. I guess what what made you guys think to kind of bring Montreal style bagels here and doing bagels in the first place? What was the kind of thought behind that? Oh, I could disappear <laughs> down a rabbit hole here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll try and keep it quiet. But basically, I worked for Tony, who's the silent partner over there. Yeah. Um, being silent? <laughs> being less silent. Um, <laughs> and he had the biggest coffee roaster in New Zealand, which he sold. And I was working for him, and in doing that, we really liked craft and coffee roasting. He got, I'm trying to sum this up succinctly, <laughs> he got a restraint of trade, can't open another roaster in New Zealand. We're like, cool, bugger off to Australia, let's open a coffee roastery. Bought the original Toby's Estate coffee roastery with its flue and gas lines, thought, sweet, plug and play, know what we're doing. Yeah. Sat here for a year running the Toby's, and we're like, oh god, everyone's doing coffee roasting. Like, everyone. Yeah. So then we've, we just looked at the market, probably read too many Blue Ocean strategy books, and we were like, oh, bagels, let's have a look at that. And <laughs> Not that big, I mean, I'm familiar with bagels. Is, are bagels big in Australia? Are they they're new? Not, or but they're growing. They're growing. Yes, they will be. <laughs> the, the, the category's growing, and it's just that. I don't know, the New York bagel was interesting, but it wasn't that interesting. Yeah. You know, like, you bake it out the back, no one sees it, there's no real hook 
can feel to it. We're like, well, the only way to bake a Montreal-style bagel is in a wood-fired oven. So, you know, flew the bills and blah, blah. But um, it's got some theatre to it, yeah. and it's interesting. And I think above everything else, Mark and I just wanted to do something that we could go to work and enjoy and also be proud of. Yeah. Montreal bagels were like, well, no one wants, there's a lot of constraints around doing it. Yeah. It's hard to build a 14 ton oven. <laughs> but it's, it's those things <laughs> so, that would just stop you and kind of like, nah, forget it. It's well, too if hard. the landlord said no, Colleen, we were, excuse my French, we were fucked. Yeah. <laughs> that was <laughs> so, the plan. <laughs> that was the plan. We had to dig into her foundations, you know, like, so yeah. she said yes, so that was good. And then DA was going through and building a wood fired oven is, well, you're just basically a polluter. So Lennox, who owns Firedor, and so in Surrey Hills, okay. he's classed as a polluter. Like, all, right. all us wood firing people, like Mike McCurney, had a chat with Mike, had a chat with Lennox, all of us guys that build, you know, burn fires. Really? We're all yeah. not really that well received yeah. by council. But I guess, the, what was the learning curve in actually create, learning how to make the bagels? Because it's one thing that you guys want to open a bagel shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what so did you guys have to go through in actually learning? <laughs> Do you guys have cooking, like baking backgrounds? What's the yeah, so we trained at San Francisco Baking Institute. Okay. Um, but uh, we're probably a little bit naive, uh, but probably in a good way. Um, we just charged straight to Montreal and straight to Saint-Couture, right. which is the premier bagel house in Montreal. And literally, I fired emails to them about a month or two in advance saying, come to Montreal, we want to learn about how to roll your bagels, got nothing, crickets. We're sitting in Montreal oh, yeah. for about two weeks. Oh really, you were already there? Yeah, we That's were there, thing. and then about two days before we flew to New York, got an email saying come into the shop. So we went in there, met the owner, Robert, and then on that meeting, pretty much just sort of went for the throat. Yeah. and said, we'll fly your baker to Sydney. And so we flew the baker from Sydney, put him up in Tony's apartment, the silent apartment, not so silent. He has an apartment in Sydney, so we're like, we're gonna put you, Tony, you don't have your apartment anymore. We're putting a baker into it, put a baker into it. Yeah. And we had the baker from St. Petula, Steve, Marina. Um, we just had him here, and he was just in here, baking bagels, rolling bagels, making yeah. for carry. He was over there somewhere, sitting around. Um, yeah, yeah. And until we sort of, just sort of dragged us through it until yeah. it stuck. So. And I, I guess, I mean, I noticed you guys closed Toby's, because you were running Toby's, and you guys had kind of left. What was that timing like of, okay, let's stop and get ready to, for the new kind of <laughs> incarnation of the space and kind of the, the launch of smoking and bagels? Uh, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors around this. <laughs> we, uh, we jumped off a cliff and we sort of assembled our parachute on the way down and probably haven't. But we were back. kind of like, like, what happened? Like, how can Toby's estate close? It's such an institution, kind yeah. of tool in a little. We'd planned it for a year. The thing about Toby's, I'm not going to rat on it, but it basically, it wasn't our brand. No, we didn't right. buy it to be a Toby's, yeah. but we had an agreement with them that we would run it for a year until we figured ourselves out. Right. So that's how that knitted together. Um, then the timing of it was, all around getting the DAs in place and also mapping out the quietest point of the year. So quietest point of the year is January. The plan was shut the site, gut it in December, January start building. Right. That was all depending on a DA coming through. And we were in Montreal, we didn't have a DA. 
Oh god. We're just making it up. So we're doing it from afar as well. <laughs> DA like... came through and we're in Montreal. We're like, oh good. Glad we're actually in Montreal for a reason. <laughs> but um, yeah, no. So then you guys eventually opened then in, when was that? May. May. So it was a few months May. to kind of It was the in. usual building issues. The, the problem we had was um, reduced travel widths uh, for fire exits. So you've got to have a minimum of a metre, and ours is 800, I think, and you've got a 14 tonne wood-fired oven. Yeah, right. So <laughs> we need to get a fire engineering report, and then just all the stuff that had to get the certificates yeah, yeah. through. That was, by the end of it, we could have opened the doors, and we were practising making bagels with the baker, right. but technically we didn't have an occupational certificate. Like that. Right, we, right. We, we had to do it. Process. So we just sort of yeah. the process of getting the doors open. There's probably a cu good couple of weeks where we wanted to. Yeah. But, but it's just like waiting way, for way. the rubber stamp. It was just like, oh yeah. Cool. Which has been kind of our case in that we were supposed to open our permanent shop yeah. <laughs> in March and it hasn't happened yeah. yet. And it's just, yeah. If you have to go with that. That's well, the realities of construction. You don't know what's going to happen no. you know, a minute in front, five minutes, two minutes. We're all yeah. making it up as we go along. We've got no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. Right, we're exactly. Just making it up. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Yeah. Well, you guys could please visit Smoking on Bagels down uh, off of Crown Street and Cathedral uh, in Willamaloo. Uh, amazing bagels, great atmosphere. The place is beautiful. The graphic design of the yeah. branding is wonderful. That's um, And you guys could uh, read more about it uh, in Mitt Magazine, uh, written, interviewed uh, by Amy Tong, just right over there. Uh -huh. uh, so you guys, yeah, check that out in the mag. Uh, thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Thank you. There we go. Next up, we have uh, Peter. Where's Peter? There. So Peter wrote uh, a round of applause. <laughs> so uh, I'm just going to start off here. He, uh, Peter wrote a piece on... Um, basically reflecting the music scene in Sydney. Uh, I'm gonna start off with just a quote that he starts off with and kind of go from there. Um, so it comes from uh, Jeffrey Blaney. That's what he said, right? <laughs> He's an Australian historian. Um, he explored in Australia, in Australia that while part of Asia and part of the West relates in a somewhat alienated, disconnected way a country that wants its own identity, but also very much wants to belong. This internal conflict is no more apparent than in Sydney, culturally divided by north, south, east, and west. So from that, I, I guess, explain a little bit more about your piece from your own words. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> I grew up in, um, I grew up in the Sutherland Shire in Sydney, and then, um, when I was 18, I moved to Canberra, where I stayed for 13 years. And um, in that time, I wanted to explore music a little bit more. So um, I was interviewing musicians and writing for a magazine in Canberra. And um, then last year, at the start of last year, I moved back to Sydney. And I was excited because I just assumed that I would be seeing a lot more live music. And what I noticed recently is that I just haven't really been attending as much music as I expected and um, and so with this with this article I just wanted to think a little bit more about why that was um, and 
Um, you know, when I talk about North, South, East, West, I think one thing I notice about Sydney, um, and, and this is true, I think, to some extent with all cities, but um, it's very ghettoized, I guess. It's very sort of, you know, you could characterize someone from the inner west in a way that you wouldn't characterize someone from the North Shore. And, um, and I just thought that was, that was a very interesting idea. And I just thought a little bit about, you know, what, you know, what, what I'd sort of observed since I moved back here, right. particularly in light of um, the music scene. So I guess, did you find that there was a lack uh, of a music scene for you to kind of check out? Did you see a change at all? Um, you know, one of the things we're kind of touch base on are the lockout laws and kind of if that had a huge effect. What was the kind of difference you kind of noticed there? Well, I think, I feel like with music here, I feel like I need to be really organized and all the music that I see, the artists are a big event. You know, it, it's always a big event that I have to buy tickets to. What, what I kind of, what I'd heard a lot about from people um, were midweek gigs at small pubs um, from unknown artists, and that's what I haven't really noticed as much because, you know, I love, I love a pub crawl, yeah. and <laughs> I, you know, I definitely, you know, I, I go from pub to pub, but um, but I just haven't, um, I just haven't seen as much of a prevalence, I guess, of, yeah. of the smaller performances. How old are you? If uh, so I'm 32. 32. So you've kind of, you've experienced it both ways. Uh, how Sydney kind of maybe used to be before the, uh, the lockout laws and kind of how it is after. You've also had the opportunity to travel. What's the difference that you kind of see in New York and LA or other places like that? Because that seems to be the places that people go to hoping the grass is greener. And that's kind of what we see in the media and kind of what you see on Instagram and all that stuff looking like, oh wow, there's an amazing music scene going on over there, let me see if I could kind of go find my people there. Yeah. A lot of youth are doing that now. It's, kind of, it's a weird thing. Um, they're not wanting to create it here, necessarily. Yeah, I'm sort of, well, what I'm hearing generally from, from musicians is that if they're not moving to Melbourne, which seems to have a little bit more community support, they're moving to um, to LA or New York or, or London in some cases, and um, and I, I I'm not really sure. Like I'm not I'm not an expert on these things. I don't really know. No, and it's your own personal kind of my personal observation. Yeah, I guess is that it's it's it's. I think a lot of it is is that that what I seem to hear is that musicians feel a little bit more supported there, mm. um, and they also have more exposure to um, other musicians there. So. One thing I sort of noticed here is that, um, you know, I mentioned um, Jack Colwell in this article who is, um, he's got a very different um, sound and it doesn't always connect with the listener. And one of his biggest stresses is, um, when he's performing in Sydney, is I really need to get as many sales as I can. And I think a lot of, there's a lot of pressure for the venues to get in as many people as they can to make that money. Right. Whereas, I think in a lot of these um, cities overseas, there's there are more people. It's the population. Obviously. Yeah. Population. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but there's not as much pressure to make money. So, um, 
it seems that venues are more willing to take a risk on smaller artists yeah. and not worry so much about whether or not they're going to make a lot of money that night. Yeah. Um, the, the stakes aren't as high. So um, being in New York the last time I was there, um, you know, I went, I, I was walking through Central Park and there was, um, there was a music festival on and um, I happened to see Tuneyards playing for free and and you know she's really interesting and she's not exactly small time but no. there was just this spontaneity yeah. um, and and discovery that I, I haven't seen as much of in Sydney and I have been here through you know Canberra's not that far from Sydney so I have been here throughout those 13 years that I was in Canberra on weekends yeah. but um, but yeah, it's 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 different midweek as well. You've got more access when you're when you're a local, I think. Absolutely, and I guess it's not all bad. That's the thing. What what are some of the great places you have discovered in Sydney that is great to kind of go and listen to live music? So I think because um, I've only been here for eighteen months, I'm still trying to get my head around it. But um, <clears throat> what well, fresh eyes are great to kind of see. It's it's hard to discover new things in a city. So it's... yeah, and what well, what I've noticed is that I think. I think things um, things go go up and get torn down a lot here. Mm. So um, a lot of, there's a lot of a lot of reliance at the moment for me on word of mouth. And there are some venues um, like the Bearded Tit. Um, there's a um, there's something I'm going to tomorrow night at the Red Rattler in Marrickville, which I haven't actually been to before. Um, but that's you know there's um, about a dozen artists performing tomorrow night there, and um, is there a suburb specifically that you kind of notice that more stuff is happening? It seems to be moving into the inner west at the moment, mm. um, but I think there are just pop-ups as well. You know, I was talking to my housemate the other night. He said that there's something a high tea event at the Hibernian House. I don't know if people have been to that. Um, but it's it's acoustic sessions on Thursday nights. You go, you can get I think free tea or otherwise BYO, yeah. and that's just in Surrey Hills. So I had no idea about that. So there are certainly things happening um, in a in a community support way, which of course it doesn't have the advertising backing it, so you might not hear about it immediately. But no, right. I'm cool. starting to hear about it a bit more now, yeah. which is cool. So. Word of mouth type of thing that kind of hopefully actually gets people knowing about it. Yeah, yeah. I think people are enthusiastic about supporting music here. It's just, it doesn't necessarily have a commercial backing, yeah. but it's there. So. Awesome. Well, Alex from the Temperance Society uh, bar over in Summer Hill, they do live music as well. So it's, you know, <coughs> yeah, it's happening. Yeah, come over and check that out. We've got some really, yeah. really good local uh, singer-songwriters and that sort of thing. We've got a fantastic girl we found at the supermarket busking recently. Really? <coughs> Yeah, a girl called Sabrina Suarez. She's one of those people, you, you, she just, she just, I told her to come over to the bar and I brought her a drink if she could come and play, play me some music so I could hear her stuff so I could walk her down the track. Right. And, um, and everyone was just speechless. Yeah. So she's someone to look out for. Sabrina yeah, Suarez, okay. amazing. Yeah. So we've got her playing in a couple of weeks. <coughs> Sunday the 9th. Okay, yeah, I haven't actually been to the Temperance Society yet either, so, <laughs> so I've got like a list of places to go. I mean, more people like Alex can't take a chance on artists, which is great. Do you have a specific night that you do music? Every Thursday night, okay. and occasionally Tuesdays, sometimes Sundays. Um, that Sunday is the Sunday festival. Um, 
um, we've got two two acts on. We've got Sabrina Squires, and then we've got uh, other kind of rockabilly blues artists to perform later on the afternoon. That's the kind of stuff I'm looking for. There you go. Yeah. Share, everyone. <laughs> Let the word of mouth kind of be told. Uh, okay, thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. Thank you. Everyone, uh, you can read his article in the new issue of Myth. And lastly, we will have Ali come up. Ali, come on in. So Ali is going to read an, act, an extract from um, his personal essay uh, that he wrote about, um, entitled The Nose. Um, I'll let him explain, or I'll let him read it and then explain a little bit about it. Our teacher then produced a bottle of Durissimo. Oh, wait. I was supposed yes. to set the scene. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> My fault. <laughs> so, just to set the scene, I have the notes right here. Uh, he's at the LVMH offices in Sydney, being schooled after landing a role at Dior's perfume counter at a local department store. Which was where? Um, Admire in Admire Canberra. in Canberra. Okay, cool. Our teacher then produced a bottle of Durissimo, an elegantly shaped, slightly flat cylinder with a silver thread wrapped at the neck. A faint golden liquid danced within it. In another hand, she displayed a fan of paper blotters, which she sprayed generously with the scent. I was handed one, and I went in for a deep and calculated sniff. The room around me melted. It's a warm night, and I'm in the front seat of an air-conditioned car, sitting in my mother's lap. My father is driving. Wedding parties always finished at ungodly hours, and we are returning home from one. My eyes are heavy with sleep, and my head keeps swaying like a broken pendulum. The constant pace of the car and its regulated temperature serves as a catalyst to my oncoming slumber. You can sleep if you want, my mother giggles, as she witnesses my desperate state and adjusts her arm to cup around me. I find the perfect spot just under her right shoulder. Her silk shirt still feels slightly damp and warm on my cheek from the humidity and heat outside. I snuggle in a little bit, a little more and take a deep breath. And in those final moments of consciousness within the embrace, I smell it. Delicate white flowers, dewy, sharp yet heat creamy, sweet yet not saccharine. The notes fill my senses as I fall to sleep. Back in the gray room in the office, holding the blotter, I smiled and looked slightly confounded at the teacher, who could see that I had developed a certain fondness to the scent. She expected a comment from me. Mother is all I could say. This episode took place seven years ago, and since began my obsession with perfume. It spurred within me a thirst for capturing and learning the alchemy of scent. I started reading perfume in two ways, the technical composition of it and the narrative and emotion that it invokes within. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Ali was telling me this story literally at our last Mitch Studio Talks, and I was like, just goosebumps, just because I, it's so true in just the way that scent does kind of have an effect on us. And it, like, my experience is if I'm walking down my street on Crown Street, where I live, um, there's a, a pizza place that does pizza, uh, wood-fired pizza. 
And it reminds me of being back in Italy, not that from Italy, I'm Canadian, but where my parents are from. <laughs> uh, whenever we visited Italy, I would always smell that wood-burning fire that was just amazing, and I get transported. And I guess this is your transportation Absolutely. there. It's amazing. Yeah. What's kind of your, how has kind of your interest in perfume evolved and kind of, is there a scent right now that kind of is your signature scent possibly? Um, I think it, it, the way it's, it's evolved is I've, I'm always like out of, outside of work, I'm just sort of Googling new fragrances. I'm always out at, at perfume counters just trying to sort of sniff the new scent. Yeah. Um, and of course, like I work at various counters um, and I was very lucky because I, I also did a stint at Mecca Cosmetica and they uh, housed a lot of niche fragrances. Um, so they were slightly more complex, a little bit, lot, not as sort of commercial. Um, and a lot of uh, perfumers got liberties to do however they please yeah. in terms of uh, ingredients and compositions. Um, and I think the way it's sort of moved and I sort of touched upon in the article as well, in the essay as well, and that's basically rather than you know just focusing on ooh you know what's what's that note that I can smell or you know how um, you know how they compose the fragrance or you know whether it's amber or patchouli or rose etc um, it's more to do with how do I feel about it um, and how like where would I where would I see it yeah. um, and it's all about that sort of um, the visual that it creates as opposed to just sort of you know I, at the end of the day it's just chemical composition <laughs> but um, it's, it's I think it's all about the not even about the story but that that first image that it conjures so yeah. I'm really about that at the moment which mm -hmm. is exciting and in the article, you go even a little bit more in depth about the history of that perfume of it and Dior. Um, and yeah, it's a great read. Uh, it goes on a little bit longer as well. Uh, but thanks, Ali. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned as well, we have a little bit of a profile on uh, Manili Candle Collaboration that we did uh, as well in the upfront section and featuring some of our well, the whole fine section, uh, compiled by Amy Tong as well, uh, is, yes, some of the highlights that were happened in this mint market pop-up shop over the last four months. Um, so in saying that, we will be opening our new space come January. Uh, we are taking about two and a half months off to kind of just prep up. Um, we get the space in December. We'll get in there in January do whatever construction we need to do, and open by hopefully the end of January. And we're gonna be under a new name, which the reveal is Fine Fellow. <laughs> like uh, that away. So we thought the, it just encompassed a little bit more of what the space is gonna be like when we move over there. Uh, this was more of kind of a market space, uh, but we're gonna be doing a little bit more there uh, when we move. Uh, we're gonna have makers on site, we're gonna have these events, um, we're a photography studio, uh, so there's going to be lots of cool stuff happening there, and fine fellow, we thought kind of worked well. Um, but yeah, thank you guys for coming to uh, the last Mid Studio Talks here. Uh, we look forward to having you when we move over in January. Uh, in the meantime, have some more bagels and drinks, and thank you for coming. Really appreciate it. And yeah, the candles uh, are for sale. We have 35 dollar travel tin and $75 large one and then the magazine is twelve ninety five. If you guys would like to support us. Thank you so much.